0: I got a, um, a disturbing email this week uh, from someone amongst us telling me of a situation where some of you have been involved in sexual immorality. And of a type, you should really be ashamed. But from what I hear, people are proud? I mean, I can't believe that there are people here, people who call themselves Christians, who take pride in their sexual freedom in a type of sexual freedom that knows no bounds. Have I got your attention? As Paul reaches the next section of this letter, he takes his gloves off. He he gets up close and personal in the faces of the Corinthian church. And he's not talking generalities anymore. He's not kind of talking about big scheme of things. He's, he's coming up talking of specifics of this church. About 40 people probably gathered in a house somewhere in Corinth. And before you spend the rest of this sermon wondering if the email was real, there was no email. (laughs) I just want to put us in the place, whereas if if we were reading this for the first time, if we were hearing it being spoken, how we would feel. But Paul did receive a message about sexual immorality from within the church. And this is what he says. Chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud? I'd imagine that when that part of the letter was read, you could have heard a pin drop in that Corinthian church. And I've got to say at this point, sexual immorality wasn't invented in the 60s. Sometimes we kind of think that Woodstock and the sexual revolution brought us to where we are today, and you know, those, those times they didn't really know what it was about. Um, but let me assure you, there's nothing new under the sun. Corinth was a port city on the Mediterranean. It was an isthmus with two ports, one, one on either side, which meant it had large numbers of people flowing through it. And it had a reputation for moral ugliness. This would have been the sign. Sin City. Welcome to fabulous Sin City, Corinth. People were cashed up, they were sailors, they were merchants, and they splurged their money on sex, amongst other things. It had been known for at least two to, two, uh, sorry three to four hundred years before this letter was even written, as the city of commercialised love. They had prostitutes, strip clubs, swingers, bisexuality, open marriages, you name it, they had it, and they had it in full what sexual immorality is as we understand it throughout the Bible is that it's sex outside of the way God made it. In other words, sex anything that is't one man and one woman in one marriage for one life. that's sexual immorality. You name it, they had it. It was so bad that if someone in the ancient world wanted to talk wanted to talk about someone who was sexually promiscuous, they would say, ah, oh, you're a Corinthian. No matter where you're from, if you were a prostitute in in the ancient world, you'd be called a Corinthian girl. It's kind of known amongst amongst the area. This city had a reputation, so don't for one second think they didn't understand the sexual pressures we feel today. They did, and it was in your face. The other extreme would be then to think that society today is somehow better than Corinth. Somehow we've got things more together. We've got it all worked out. We're no longer that simple and crude. We don't have temple prostitutes where you go and where you you go into the temple and you can sleep with whoever you want, do whatever you want, with whenever you want. We're much more sophisticated than that today. We're not like that. We've moved on. But I want to say the similarities between Corinth and Auckland don't just lie in its isthmus characteristics, in the fact that it has two ports, and the fact that many people travel backwards and forwards through it. Auckland is a city that prides itself on its freedom, on its free society, and free sex. Do you know on the Go to New Zealand website, it's, go to newzealand.about.com, this is what it says New Zealand is a liberal society and prostitution is toler- tolerated to a degree seen in not many other countries in the world. New Zealand has most has some of the most liberal sex worker laws in the world. Brothels, strip clubs, swingers' bars, prostitution, they're all legal here in this city. You can go and it's fine. You can do stuff in Auckland that would be illegal in 49 of the 50 states of America. I'm saying illegal. In fact, let me just show you. There's a map here. This map, the places that are green are the only places in the world where brothels are legal. Do you see that? There's not many. This is a city that celebrates its freedom freedom to do whatever it wants, whenever it wants, with whoever it wants. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see Paul talk about living in a city like this. So as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and we hear it in a city that is very similar, the thing to note is that he's not shocked at the sexual immorality around him. It's not like, oh, it's so bad. He's shocked that it's in the church. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind, that does not even occur among the pagans, amongst the world. You're worse than the world around you, Corinthians. What are you thinking? A man has his father's wife. In other words, he's sleeping with his stepmother. That's wrong, isn't it? I mean, no matter how good-looking she is, no matter if your your father's married young and she might be closer in age to you than to him, no matter how available she is or how free and loose she is, it's wrong. You're committing adultery against your father with your stepmother. But here's the clincher. That wasn't the worst. Look at verse 2. And you, Corinthian church, are proud. It's here we see the depth of their sin. The church that Jesus died for, the church that put their trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, the church that turned their backs on the way of the world to follow a new king, a better king, that church is now proud that they have a freedom that enables them to be more morally ugly than the world around them. A church that now celebrates that freedom in ways that just deny who they are. They are proud. The depth of their sin isn't sexual immorality, it's pride. Pride in their own take on Christian living. Pride thinking, we've got it right, we're free, we can do whatever we want. Pride in the way they can still be saved, still call themselves Christians, but live however they feel. The depth of their sin wasn't in what someone did with his stepmother. It's what the church didn't do. That's what the church didn't do. I mean, who would do that? Who would take their pride in living a way that is clearly contrary to the Word of God, to the plain reading of Scripture? Who would? We would. Don't you feel that temptation? To kind of compromise to the world standards? To say, oh, it's okay, we're saved by grace, but we continue just we just trust in in what we've done. Or to match the world around us, or even trump them in our freedom. Before long, the compromises that we take become the things that we boast in. The things that we take pride in. You know, you, you become a church that welcomes all people. That's great, you want to welcome all people. But rather than just accepting all people to church, they then become a church that accepts what everyone believes as a true way to God. A church that says Jesus isn't the only way and then they come, become proud in that. Jesus is not the only way. We're an inclusive church. Come to us. We've got it sorted. They boast. Or the progressive church that says that all ways of sexual expression are okay. Their progressiveness then becomes the thing that defines them, the thing they put on their website, the thing that they talk about, the thing that they've known as. This is a progressive church. This is what we're about. Well, then there's the business church, right? The church says that it promises abundant financial and material prosperity. Come to Jesus and your life, you'll be richer than everyone around you. Now, not that having money is a problem, but seeking money as the ultimate goal. Coming to church because God will prosper you? It's just wrong. It's like using God. Well, the business church becomes their focus, their thing, the thing they've always put their eye on. And that's the nature of sin. Failure to trust God's word. The temptation to boast in your own ideas, to, to make up your own rules. If you remember back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter, chapter 2 and 3, that's what happened. You'll not surely die, Satan says to Eve, doubting God's word. You'll become like God. You'll determine good and evil. You'll be just like him and you can be in control. You can set your own way. You can be proud in your decisions. Mankind started by doubting God's Word and ended up building a tower to say, look at us. We can reach the heavens without God. What started as, a, as, a, as a, oh, will I, will I trust God or not? No, I'll just step out a little, ends up in pride saying, how good am I? Look at what I can do with my own hands, glorying in their self-made mountain. Mankind's pride was so strong and spread so wide and sunk so deep into the hearts of mankind, that this is what God says in Genesis 6. Have a look, it's on the screen. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Do you see the nature of sin? Spreads like gangrene. Started with one man and one woman. And through that, the whole earth becomes corrupt. Every inclination of everyone, all the time, was only evil. When my dad was five, um, about the sort of same size Nathaniel is now, he loved climbing trees, like Nathaniel does, and um, he was in his, his backyard, went and climbed his tree, and thought, oh, one more before I go to school, climbed up, fell out of the tree, put his arm out as he fell, with his left hand, and broke his arm, smashed it. Uh, they went to the hospital I took him in at the hospital and kind of went oh, Okay, it looks like we think it's broken But we're not, we're not totally sure You're going to need to go to the city hospital So go home tonight And then tomorrow head um, into the big city hospital And get it checked out there So they did that, <laughs> he's in lots of pain, right? Gave him some Panadol or something Go home, next day in the afternoon They get, they get to the hospital By the time they take the x-rays like it's, it's smashed Your arm is, in fact it's so bad It's cut circulation in your arm we need to operate now. As they open it up, they see that it's full of gangrene. The cells have started to die, and there's a bacteria in there which is now killing the other cells and growing. It got pretty close for Dad. He has now got scars the whole way down that side of his arm and the whole way down the back. They nearly had to amputate because gangrene just takes root. In fact, it was so big, this gangrene that it had taken because there was no blood supply, they didn't even worry about the broken arm. They just kind of passed it. And went, we just got to fix stuff later. He was in hospital for three months. Well, they cleared the gangrene, got that sorted, then re-broke his arm, reset it once they had time to fix that. He knew he lost his arm or his life because of the way gangrene spreads. It gets in and every little crevice and just kills whatever's in its path. Sin, rebellion against God, is like gangrene. It's like gangrene for our lives. It gets in and, and starts killing off our consciences, killing off the way we live And thinking that I can serve myself and that this is okay, rather than taking the word of God as the word of God. But not only does it have an effect on the individual, it has an effect on God's church. It has an effect amongst the people that gather. And and, and tends to pull people away from trusting God. Have a look with me at verse 6 and 7 in 1 Corinthians 5. You're boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. If you let sin fester in the church, says Paul, it ruins the whole batch. Like yeast causes the whole batch of dough to rise, so sin causes the whole batch of the church to turn against God if it's left unchecked. As often EV grows, um, and it's early days yet, but I'm sure people are going to have issues with us as a church. I'm sure they're going to say that we are narrow. Our view of the Bible is narrow, or maybe worse, we're exclusive. But as long as our narrowness is never more narrow than Jesus, I'm happy with that. Because we're here to point to Jesus and what he has done and what he has said. The claim that I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To deny that would be <laughs> would be unloving to people. To say there is another way is to go against Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 7, it's on the screen, For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to destruction to life. I'm not saying we're the only church that you can become a Christian in. Not by any stretch. But I'm saying Jesus is the only way to know God. He's the only ruler of this world who has died in our place. And he says, trust me. Follow me. Paul's biggest issue with the Corinthian situation was not what someone did with their stepmother. That's what the church didn't do. Verse 2 shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? What Paul's saying is that the church's tolerance of alternative lifestyles is wicked. The church's tolerance of alternative lifestyles is wicked. And for those who claim to be Christian and are happy sitting in unrepentant sin, rebelling against God, they're kind of happy to stay there, Paul says drastic measures are required. Drastic. The right response isn't pride. It's grief. Heartfelt emotion. The dictionary describes grief as a deep or intense sorrow or distress. When was the last time you felt grief over the position of a brother or sister? Rebellion against God is never good for someone. Never. It's never in their best interest. It's not even neutral. Like, you know, if you go one way or the other. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, that's up to them. It is up to them. But does it grieve you? The right response to a brother or sister's sin is not indifference. It's deep and intense sorrow and distress Are you blinded to the sin of your church family? I ask that of myself. Do I find myself just turning my eyes the other way, going, oh, they'll sort it out in a while? Does your pride in our church, our freedom from tradition, the freedom to meet in a cinema, to kind of not wear fancy robes or worry about this kind of, those things that so often hinder, does our pride in those things, our missional status, our desire to reach the world... Blind us of our brothers' and sisters' hearts. Or of your heart. Do you find yourself just letting it go? It's not my responsibility. Letting sin fester is something we need not do. It is our responsibility. To love and care for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our responsibility. Whatever it is. Whether it's sexual immorality, we're going to have a look at what that is in much more detail in, in two weeks. But, kind of, sex before marriage, sex with someone you may one day marry, sex with someone you might be engaged to, um, not just causing them to sex, lust, um, raising sexual desire in someone, looking at porn, there's a few, whether it's that, whether it's greed. And this actually hit me this week, as I was working through this passage, I'm like, What is greed? Uh, The kind of definition of the Greek word and all the fancy dictionary stuff is exactly what we think greed is. But it hit me. It's the desire to have more than is due. The desire to have more than is due. What hit me about that is I'm always looking for a good deal. To get kind of more out of something than probably my money should allow me to. Um, this is, this is part of me that kind of wants a bargain and is really keen to get whatever I can get, to get whatever is, is more than I am due. It hit me this week. Are you greedy, or So I, I had to do business with God and, and, and repent of my greed. Idolatry, putting something or someone above Jesus. Abusiveness, drunkenness, thieves, whatever it is. If you stay in that sin, or your friend stays in that sin, it will result in spending eternity apart from God. Now again, I'm not saying that anyone who has ever sinned is in hell. I'm not saying that if you've sinned, that's it, too bad, you're gone. I'm saying that Christians who are unrepentant, well actually that's what Paul saying, uh, who are sitting in it and going, look, I... I I'm just happy to keep going the way I am. I'm happy just to call it whatever. Uh, who aren't doing anything to stop it. That's the issue. We're not called to be the sin police. Let me say this here. <laughs> we're not called to go around inspecting everyone's life, going, ah, oh, pull it in. You're a bit greedy there. You know, we're not called to have the spiritual gift of um, rebuking. I rebuke you in the power of Jesus. I don't, it's, not, it's love, right? It's care for your brothers and sisters. It's that humble word, hey, how are you going? What's going on? In fact, it should grieve us. But more than that, Paul says it should result in action. This is where it gets even a little more cringy. Paul says in verse 2, the right response should have been grief and you should have put out of your fellowship the man who did this. That seems a bit harsh for the God of love, doesn't it? And he is the God of love. It seems like such a strong response, but as you read through it, it's actually for their sake and for the sake of the church. Why wouldn't you talk with that person? Why wouldn't you carefully and respectfully and humbly say, brother, I'm worried about you. Sister, what's going on? What's going on for you at the moment? Where are you at? If you continue like this, it's like you're living like you don't care about God. I'm no better than you. I haven't got it all sorted. I haven't got life all worked out. But you're starting to call that which God says is sin, not sin. Aren't you? The only reasons I can come up with for not saying anything to someone in sin are sinful. I can't be bothered. I mean, let's be honest, right? It's what it is often. It's too hard. They, they might not like me afterwards. Their friendship is too important to risk. You know what that's actually saying? I care more about having a relationship with you than where you're going to spend eternity. And yet I do it. Don't believe Satan's lie. Eternity is on the line for us all. If we continue to rebel against God... We happily sit in sin if we are unrepentant. But sometimes we let this idea get in our heads that unless you know someone really well, you know their background, you've been their friend for 30 years, you know their life story, uh, you've got journal entries in their journal, Uh, unless you've been my friend for the past 15 years, unless you sit down with me, unless you kind of spend five weeks hearing all my situations, then you can't really judge me. You can't say anything to me. But Paul says, I'm not even there. I'm not even there, and I called it sin. It's easy. Are you having sex outside of marriage? Sin. Are you happily sitting in greed, desiring more than what is due? Sin. Are you happily having something or someone else higher than, than Jesus? Sin. Do you think it's okay to get drunk Friday and Saturday, then rock up at church on Sunday and ask for forgiveness? And they do the whole thing again over and over and over. Or is your drunkenness keeping you from church? Keeping you from growing in your love and knowledge of God? From encouraging your brothers and sisters? Sin. It's not hard, it's just hard to hear. Don't believe Satan's lie. This life is no warm up game, it's no dress rehearsal. We're at war, friends. Satan is doing everything in his power to pull us away from Jesus, away from the hope that's been given to us. He wants nothing more than you and I to start going, oh, that's okay. And he's never going to get us to do something that we know is wrong, right? We're going be like, oh, I know that's wrong, I'm not doing that. What he does is he starts pushing us and going, that's not that wrong, is it? Like, sure, I can see how some could hold that position, and then we start going, oh, that's okay for me to do, and then... Well, we call that which God calls sin, not sin. Calling sin by some other name, redefining it as a personal preference, results in hell, says Paul. Sin is not okay. It's not okay. We're playing for keeps, friends. We need to love our brothers and sisters by caring for them. Paul says... It's for their own good. And it's for the good of the church. He says, kick them out so they don't infect the batch. so they get a glimpse of their future away from God and his people. But if you look carefully, it's more than kicking them out of church. Have a look at verse 11. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, so a Christian, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, or slanderer, or drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. That feels harsh to me. I kind of go, "Are you serious?" It feels like some cult. You're like, "Well, you can't be part of us. Get out." I've got to reiterate: it's not talking about people who aren't Christians. It's talking about Christians people who claim to be trusting in Jesus, that are living hypocritical lives. It's for their good, so they may see their future and come back. Non-Christians who are doing all those things are totally welcome at church. And if that's you, welcome. We love having you here. We love having you here about the God of the Bible. Don't feel like, well, I'm not welcome there. You are, totally. Um, if you're not a Christian here today, I want to say welcome. no matter what your past is, no matter what you've done now, no matter how sinful you are, if you're not trusting in Jesus but you're coming to check him out, welcome. But for those who've taken Jesus at his word, who claim to be followers of Jesus, who've accepted that he is the ruler of this universe and call themselves Christians, you can't claim to be a Christian and live totally the opposite. It's just hypocritical. I trust in Jesus, for him to save me but not... For him to rule my life, it's hurtful to yourself and to God's church. But if you're a Christian and you want to change, you want to stop your porn addiction, you want to stop sleeping around, you want to stop putting something or someone else in front of Jesus, you want to stop trying to get more than what is your due, you want to stop getting drunk, you want you want to stop rebelling. You're sick of it. Yet you keep going back to it like a dog to its vomit. Welcome. That's all of us. We're sinners. We're people that don't have a right, but we want to change. We want to let God change us. That's what church is about. We've all fallen short. We don't need to be a bunch of people that think we've got it all together. That think, yep, yeah, I've got it sorted. You know, I'm a good person. I'm... We're not. Yet we know a God who is, and He died for us. So the desire and outcome of putting people outside the church, of speaking to people, is to show them their future. Is it to smite them? Not to say, ah, get away from me, I'm so much better. Is to say, look, if you continue like this, you're rebelling against God and your future is outside of his people. The idea is so they may see what they're doing and trust in Jesus again. And I know people this has happened for. Uh, a guy, I know... Exactly that thing. He was living in sexual immorality uh, in a huge way, obviously and blatantly against what God's Word had said. He knew it. He'd grown up as a Christian. He was claiming to be a Christian. He was trying to have the intellectual arguments that his sin was okay. Until finally, someone in the church, the the leadership of the church, said, Hey, then, if you continue like this, we'll kick you out of the church. Because of what, the way you were living, you know it's wrong. They'd spent time with him, it's not like, right, sin, go. They'd spent like months, like half a year, discussing this stuff, talking through it with him, coming backwards and forwards. They'd, they'd sat patiently with him. One person had gone to him, two people had gone to him. They'd kind of brought it before the leadership of the church. They'd done everything in their power. They said, man, you know this is the last step, right? You need to get out. You need to leave. And he says, Quote, unquote, that was the moment that I saw my future. Without God, without salvation. And fell to my knees and said, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Now, was it hard for him? Yeah, it was hard. He had to stop living with a same-sex partner. In fact, three or four same-sex partners. He left that relationship and he walked away from a lifestyle that was causing him and his family and his friends massive pain. He said he kept having to go and get um, checked for HIV, given the lifestyle he was living. He knew it was wrong, but he still wanted to live it. But he gave it away. Now I want to say that's a work that only God does. Convicting people of their sin, asking people to leave the church, he's actually loving. He now trusts in Jesus. He has now repented from that, and wants to serve him wholeheartedly. No matter what his flaws are, no matter how, what temptations he still faces, it's not all rosy, it's hard. But he trusts in Jesus. Friends, if it's you someone comes to talk to, or me, don't get angry. Don't get all aggro at someone. Listen. They have your best interests at heart. Don't kind of look for where you're right, where you can prove what you've done But look for where you might have been wrong. Come before God together, pray together. If you're claiming to be a Christian, then pray and look at God's word and think, well, how do I need to change? It's just too important to ignore. When it comes to Christian brother or sister in unrepentant sin, this passage leaves us with only three options. If you're sitting there continually sinning, Claiming to be a Christian, option one is you need to leave. You cannot claim to be a Christian and be part of the church while you're still sinning, while you're still sitting in, in, in that sin. Option two, you can stop calling yourself a Christian. You can say, you know what, I am living against what God is saying, but I'm happy with that. In which case, you're welcome at church, welcome amongst us. But just don't call yourself a Christian. Don't fool yourself. Or the third option, stop sinning and repent. I am a believer. Yes, the way I'm living is against what God has said to me. Turn and ask for forgiveness and continue with us, a bunch of forgiven sinners struggling to serve him. Friends, God is jealous for his church. He paid for our salvation, for your salvation, at a massive cost. The blood of his son. He brought us out of darkness and he brought us into light. So if you trust in Jesus, you are not who you were. So don't take sin lightly. Don't go back to the way the world is around us and think it's okay. Is there some action you need to take? Some friend you need to speak to? Something you need to do between you and God? On that last day when Jesus returns and judges the world, what do you think your friend will say? I can't believe you said that to me. I can't believe you came and told me that I was living against God's word and, and that, that I rejected Him and I was looking at hell. Or you think they'll say, Thank you. Thank you for taking my sin seriously. Thank you for taking my relationship with God above. Your relationship with me. Thank you for caring for me and for loving me. And now I get to spend an eternity with you and God's people. God's not after a big church. At whatever cost to the holiness, to, to, to you know, getting numbers no matter what he has to compromise. He's after a true church. A church that takes him at his word, a church that trusts in Jesus to the end. And it's my prayer that we will be that church. Let's pray, hey. Father God, we want to thank you so much that Jesus has died so we can have life. We acknowledge that so often we sin, we turn our back on your way, Sometimes overtly we know what we're doing other times it just kind of happens Lord show us where we need to come back to you help us to recognise that we need your forgiveness we need your help so Lord convict us and change us let us not be lazy in the way we speak to others let us not kind of um, just forget about others around us but let us love one another and let us take your church seriously sin seriously Help us to be grieved rather than proud. Amen.